Well, it's good to be back up here preaching God's Word. Um, let me begin by just reading the passage and I'll pray. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I'll be reading from the ESV. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce. If any woman has a husband who has an unbeliever, who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this reading of your word. We pray that we would have hearts of humility. God, thank you for the gift of the gospel. May this time be fruitful and that we learn to love and esteem the Lord Jesus more and more, in whose name we pray. Amen. I confess that I have always been into watching superhero movies. From the youngest of ages, I remember reading comic books, and the first kind of superhero movie I remember happening was, was Spider-Man with Tobey Maguire. And I was very jealous of my older brother who got to go see it in theaters before I did. And something about these superhero movies that I particularly like is, is following their origin stories. How does Peter Parker, a nerdy science guy with no friends, introverted, all about himself, become this superhuman, strong person with spidey senses. I just think it's really fascinating. And what's funny, when you, when you watch these superhero movies and, and you see their origin stories, 
everything about them has changed. They go from being weak to being strong. They used to be just the little guy concerned about their own problem, but now they have desires and a much bigger purpose to help maybe save humanity or to stop the car burglar. Their relationships changes, their desires, their, their whole worldview becomes around these new powers that they have acquired. But at the same time, Peter Parker, although new and improved, is still Peter Parker. He still likes the same foods. He still has the crush on the same girl. But at the same time, everything has changed. Nothing is neutral anymore. And so it is when we believe the gospel. When we become Christians, we are still the same people, but everything has changed from our actions to the intentions of our heart. Everything now comes underneath the rule and the reign of our God and King, the Lord Jesus. Nothing is off limits to the rule and reign of Christ when we believe in his gospel. And so as we are changed by the gospel, we're changed positionally, we become holy people, but we're also being changed, there are some things and, and at times trials where we have to learn this new normal. And so it is even when superheroes, they have these trials, they have these, these big kind of canon events where, where someone dies and they have to learn these new lessons or they, they have a real villain and they, they have to learn about how to rely on other people to help them. And so it is even with, with Christians. As we are living this Christian life, we begin to understand, wait, wait, how does it work? How does the gospel speak into, say, what do I do with my money? Or, or how does the gospel make sure that I, I speak with kindness and I don't yell? Or how does the gospel change me in regards to what should I do with my life? Should I go to this college or that college? And it's graduation season. I know a lot of young people ask those questions. And so nothing is off limits. And in our last time, considering 1 Corinthians back in May, Paul was trying to help these Corinthian believers understand that the gospel changes even how you understand what to do with your body. These limbs and these members, they matter to the Lord. It's not a redemption from the body, it's a redemption of the body. And, and Paul's clearest implication of how the gospel changes what we do with our bodies in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Right? If you have your Bible open still, would you look at it on verse 18? Look what he says. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Again, everything has changed about you. Your body is no longer a vessel for unrighteousness. It's a temple. And so what's his logical conclusion? You are not your own. You belong to God for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So Paul wants these Corinthian believers to know that, that following Jesus means that we learn to honor God with our body. Now, negatively, we've already discussed that that means turning away from sexual morality. 
but positively. What does it mean to honor God with our bodies? I think these Corinthian believers had a lot of confusion, as, as do we. For me, as a married person, how do I learn to honor God with my body when, when there's another person involved? Or, or if I'm a single person and, I, and I'm not married, how, how do I learn to honor God with my body? Well, more or less, that's exactly what Paul is trying to help them understand in all of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, we're going to break up this chapter into seven parts. Today, we're going to consider primarily this idea of marriage. How does the gospel help us understand what we do in marriage? Because apparently, there's Corinthian believers who in the sexual immorality that they're witnessing in the Corinthian culture, as they see prostitution abound, homosexuality, every type of sexual vice that you can imagine, their reaction was to think, well, since we're Christians and we're really spiritually mature, the truly spiritual mature Christian is the person who doesn't give in to sexual pleasure at all. In fact, we need to abstain from all forms of sexual pleasure. This is a concept known as asceticism in which we think that we can honor God by abstaining from pleasures, whether it be food or sex or drink. And apparently these Corinthian believers kind of thought that they were being spiritually wise and spiritually mature by forcing their spouses into a forced type of celibacy. And Paul says, whoa, 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 whoa. Yes, what you do with your body, it matters. But there is some special things that we need to remember if you are married and if you are single. And so if, before we kind of even jump into the passage, let me just give you a, a snapshot of the whole chapter. So verses 1 through 16, Paul seems to be dealing with the issue of marriage. And then right in the middle of 17 to 24, he gives a ruling principle for what he says before and what he says afterwards about singleness. And so in many ways, I would say verse 17 is kind of the key interpretive verse of the whole chapter. So if you look in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 17, he says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. And so Paul wants people to understand that, yes, when you become a Christian and when you believe the gospel, everything does change. But that doesn't mean that all of the circumstances you find yourself in, that you need to go and try to remove yourself from. And so if you're married, be at peace in the marriage that you're in. If you're single, be at peace. And so the point I think that Paul is making in verses 1 through 16, and the main point for our time this morning is simply this, that Christ is honored when we are at peace in our marriages. Again, against the backdrop of this asceticism, people thought that Christ was more honored by abstaining from any pleasure in sexual union. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Christ is actually honored. You are being spiritually mature when you stay in your marriage and you are in peace in your marriage. And so here's the question for us. Well, what does it look like to honor Christ and to be at peace in our marriages? I'm glad you asked. We have three points to answer that question. First, Paul says the way we honor Christ 
and pursue peace in our marriage is, number one, first point, we protect and enjoy our marriages. We protect and enjoy our marriages. This is in verses 1 through 7. Now, I, I know something happened a moment ago when I read this passage. A lot of people just found their new favorite Bible passage. A lot of men who never talk about the sermon after church are all of a sudden going to become expert theologians and exegetes and saying, dear, we should talk about the sermon that we heard, right? But with all of that said, there's a lot of things happening in this passage, and I want to be clear that we should take this passage also in harmony with other passages that Paul says about marriage. Because something I need to say on the out front is a lot of people have accused Paul of having a form of sex and marriage that is only for those, those burners, those people who can't control themselves. And, and marriage kind of becomes like this lesser institution for those people who have no self-control. And why I think that's a bad reading is because Paul is addressing a specific issue, and we don't have the exact language of what the people are saying. We have just this quotation from them. But we need to make sure that we read this passage in harmony with everything else. Paul is not giving a full systematic view of marriage. All right, commercial over. Let's get into the passage. And so Paul begins, like I said, with a quotation. In verse, chapter 7 through 11, he'll just take issue after issue that they've written about. And here's what they say. All things are lawful. Excuse me, I was looking at the wrong passage. Verse 1. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, there's, there's a few interpretive challenges with this. Some people think that Paul is actually saying this. I, I would differ against that. But what's also confusing, if you check a lot of different translations, they translate this all very differently. And that's because Paul is employing a euphemism here about a man not touching a woman obviously means sexual relationships. So I think the ESV does a very good job. I'm pro-ESV. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So again, like I mentioned, it's hard to understand the context that the Corinthian culture is in. You know, sometimes I hear Christians say, look at our society, look at our culture. You know, we're in the middle of Pride Month. Everywhere I go, whether it's at the gym or the coffee shop, there's rainbow flags, and, and it's all hailing sexual identity. I, I think in many ways, America would look quite modest to the sexual perversion and just how it's open and honest in Corinthian culture. And so you can almost appreciate how the natural gut reaction would be to go the exact opposite way. If the Corinthian culture says everything is permissible, the, the asceticism says, no, God is honored by not having any of that. And I, I want you to know, almost every religion has some form of asceticism. And it, and it truly makes sense. How many of us know just how often our desires get us in trouble? How often do we do things that we wish we didn't do? And so we just think the natural response to that is just to say no completely outright. But Paul disagrees. Paul says, because of the temptation to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Paul understands that sex and marriage are linked together. You can't really have one without the other. So Paul, Paul says here that one of the reasons why, not just the reason, but one of the reasons why 
couples have sex in marriage is to avoid the temptation to sexual morality. Consider what Paul has already talked about in chapter 5 and chapter 6. I mean, all on and on and on about the dangers of sexual immorality. And so, no, you are not being more pious by abstaining. In fact, Paul encourages. And so the language here that makes this maybe a little uncomfortable is the language in verses 3 and 4 where you see this, this mutual yieldedness, Right? Paul says the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, almost like her, her, her marital dues. But more than this, the wife should also. The language here is very strong. It's like the word of, of defrauding. Don't defraud. Don't cheat. Don't swindle your spouse of what is rightfully theirs in the marriage. Why? Because verse 4, he says, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now, some of us, we might feel very uncomfortable with that. But look what Paul says right after that. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, you have to understand just how culturally insane that would have sounded to the original readers. No Greek or Roman man in their right mind would have ever thought that their wife had authority over them. Consider what this one commentary says. Greek men certainly did not believe that their wives had authority over their bodies, but Paul is adamant. Marriage is not one-sided. It requires just as much self-yielding from man as it requires from a woman. And so, Paul seems to think that sexual relations, like marriage as a whole, only work when both partners yield their bodies to each other, preferring the other to themselves and looking to serve the spouse in any way possible. So I need to caution you to not use this passage to get your own way. You are missing the language. Paul is not talking about the getting. He is talking about the giving. And so if you use this passage to try to get more sex in your marriage, you're misunderstanding Paul's language completely. It is not so much about what you can get, but what you can give. And so this mutual yieldedness in marriage, I mean, consider sometimes the highly authoritarian views we can take in, in Ephesians 5 about wives submit to your husband. And imagine what Paul is saying here, lining that up. The wife has just as much authority over her husband's body. And so a few things I think that Paul says here that we should take observation first, like I just said, Paul is stressing the giving rather than the getting. Marriage is the giving of oneself to another. And so this passage does not give us license to demand. The language here is much more about giving. But secondly, like I said a moment ago, this shows us that sex and marriage, again, they, they go together. They're indispensable. When the Lord says, let no man asunder what God has put together, I don't think that just means divorce. I, I think that means sex and marriage. And so in 1 Corinthians 13, that famous love passage where, where Paul says, love does not insist on its own way, I have to assume that some people in the Corinthian church were insisting on what they wanted. 
thinking that it was more spiritual to force their spouse into celibacy. And so, last thing Paul says here, he gives one kind of concession. And he says, okay, for, for one exception though, if there's a time of prayer for a limited time, a short amount of time, devote yourself to prayer, but then come together so that Satan may not tempt you. There's a lot I can say here, but man, this just sounds like an ancient sex manual. Making love is good. Husbands and wives should enjoy it frequently. They should give themselves up to each other. They should not abstain except for a very short period of time. But yet then, right when he says all this, he just throws in a curveball. In verse 6, he says, Now is a concession, not a command. I say this, I wish that all were as I as myself am. But each has his own gift from God, and one kind has one and one has another. So, so Paul here, he, he's trying to say, yes, sex and marriage, it's good. It's a gift. You're, you're to enjoy it. But at the same time, I, I wish that people were more like myself. Celibate. But I, but I understand, you have a gift, and I have a gift. And whatever gift you have, you should honor Christ with that gift. See, he, he, walks, he walks this tightrope of affirming the inherent goodness of sex and marriage but also the legitimacy of living a single life. How often in our culture are we told that to not have sexual fulfillment is to not even be a person? And we'll talk more about this later in a few weeks when we have a sermon particularly just on singleness. But for now, Paul says that sex and marriage are great for those who have that gift. And for most of us, that, that's us. Most of us have that gift and have that desire and so as I was thinking about applying this passage, I obviously wanted to be very pastoral, pastorally wise and have nuances. And I, I know that some of the reactions may be, well, man, I just feel like such a, a loser. I, I, I don't do enough for God. And now I don't you know, recognize enough for my spouse. And there could be guilt and all of these things. And I just want to be gracious and, and conscious and of, of all of those feelings. And I recognize, too, that this passage has probably been abused by over-authoritarian husbands. So as I was preparing this, this week's sermon, I, I spent a lot of time reading in Song of Solomon. If you're not familiar with that book, it's, it's just poetry in the Old Testament, and it's love letters. It really is just love letters. There's no real narrative or plot. I just think it's a bunch of poems um, of a husband and a wife. And what we see in that is that sexual fulfillment in marriage is painted a lot like a garden. It's like this oasis. You think of Israel as very dry and barren, and, and the Song of Solomon says sex and marriage is like this wonderful garden that God brings fruits and aromas and things that are pleasing to help nourish his people. And so I kind of want to use that metaphor of a garden of cultivating a healthy sex life in regards to Christian marriage. And so if you notice, every garden is a little bit different. Some, some gardens, there's plants that have more sun or more shade. Some need more water. Some need less water. Some need a little bit more work. Some need less work. And so we have to understand that, that Paul here, I think his, his most basic implication of what he's saying in these verses is that for those of us who are married, we should probably be having more sex in our marriages. I'm not sure that's something I ever thought I'd hear say, in, like, here in church. But it seems to be, 
what Paul is saying. And so I recognize there's, there's different seasons and desires wane and, and there's situations, but, but friends, let's be honest, there are so many excuses we can give for those of us who are married as to why we do not enjoy this good gift. Because what Paul is saying, when we enjoy this gift, we're actually protecting our marriage, rewarding against sexual temptation. And so sex is good. We should enjoy it. And although I know there's sleep and there's children and we get sick and there's stress and there's busyness and there's health issues and there's, there's so many excuses, but I think we need to try to make sure that we are prioritizing this in our marriages. And so I'm not sure where I heard this, but a long time ago, I think it, it rang true in my ear that before we get married and when we're single people, the devil does everything he can to force us into sexual morality. The temptation when you are engaged or dating someone is so strong. But yet, the second we're married, the devil does everything he can to drive us apart sexually. We have an evil enemy who wants to destroy the good gift that God has given us. And so if you're a single person, I just want to let you know that, that God's call for you is to be celibate until you're married. And that might sound cruel, but it is not. The, the guilt and the shame that come from sexual sin, it, it just wreaks havoc on us spiritually. And so for all of us, we need to understand that we are called to cultivate this garden, this rich oasis in our marriage. And for some of us, we understand that this intimacy gets choked out by the distorted counterfeits of pornography and self-pleasure. Fantasy and escape are always easier than authentic and hard-won intimacy. And so I, I've noticed that sometimes, you know, there's stereotypes, and I don't know how true the stereotype is, but, but, but some have said that, that men use relationship to get sex and women use sex to get relationship. Again, I don't know how true that is, but, but sometimes there can kind of be this tension where one person in the marriage has maybe more sexual desires than the other person, and it kind of seems that's normally the man, not always. And he may kind of try to, like, do some things, and he's always kind of thinking, well, what can I do to kind of get more of this, you know, satisfaction? And, and, you know, he's thinking about it, and the woman kind of knows that, and she's kind of using that to her advantage. She kind of plays those cards, and there's, like, this passive-aggressive kind of vicious cycle that goes on with all this. How do we, how do we get out of that? How do we do what Paul is saying here in which we just kind of give ourselves to our spouses? I think we remember the gospel. I think we remember that our bodies don't belong to us. They belong to the Lord. And they also belong to our spouses. And so, men, I just want to encourage you here. Don't, don't cherry pick this one verse. Remember what Scripture calls you to, that you are to love your wife. You are called to use your body for her, you know? Some, some things about your body is, is your wife might need more things about your body. You know, maybe your ears, maybe your, your hands to help serve her in some way. And, and, and women, I would say, don't forget that your, your body belongs to the Lord. Now, your husband who loves you, you are called to freely give yourself out of reverence for Christ. And so a lot of the premarital counseling I give, I tell people frequently that physical intimacy is always the culmination of relational, emotional, and spiritual intimacy. 
And so for us to protect and enjoy our marriage, there might just need to be some, some conversations we have with our spouses of how to develop that type of intimacy. And so in summary, Paul's teaching is clear. For those who are married, we honor Christ in our marriages by protecting and enjoying the gift of sexual intimacy that God has given us. Both to the husband and the wife belong to each other just as they belong to the Lord. I think this is a point that sometimes gets missed in purity culture. We tell young people for so long, don't have sex, don't have sex, don't have sex, and they get married, and they feel kind of dirty, and they feel awkward. And we need to just be Christians who understand that God has given us a great gift. And so it is not wrong, it is good, and we should enjoy, and we should protect our marriage. But secondly, and more briefly, I know it's a long point, and God have mercy on all that, We are to pursue godly marriage. Verses 8, would you look down in your Bible? To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so briefly, these two verses kind of show how Paul, again, is giving a little bit of a hint towards singleness. And I don't want to say too much about singleness because I'll be having a whole sermon just on how to honor God as a single person. But I'll say a few things for now. Judaism had a high value of marriage. In fact, some rabbis would teach that if you weren't married by age 20, you were cursed. And you don't have to read far in the Bible to see where they came up with that. In the Genesis account, we see it is not good for man to be alone. And one of the reasons why they had such a high view of marriage is because the primary way God's kingdom grew in the Old Testament, his covenant people, was through the birth of children, the seed of the woman. But something fundamentally changed when the Spirit came. Now, we don't necessarily make more of God's people simply through birth, but through evangelism. And so this is why Paul can say all throughout chapter 7 that singleness is better for those who have that gift. Singleness is not something that's a problem. Singleness, in many ways, Paul says, allows you to have more free ministry, more time, less worldly troubles, as he'll say later in chapter 7. And so Paul, Paul here wants people to know, like, hey, singleness is a valid option. Now, there's been some distortions about people interpreting Paul about singleness here. The Roman Catholic Church in particular thinks that Paul is saying that being single is spiritually more mature than those who are married. And and kind of on the surface, doesn't it seem like what Paul is saying? Marriage for all of you who can't have self-control, you should get married. But for us who are more spiritual and want to devote our lives fully to Christ, this is where we're going to go. We're going to go with celibacy and singleness. Now, again, I don't think that's what Paul is saying. I think what Paul is saying is if you have the gift of singleness, celibacy is better. But if you don't have that gift, it doesn't mean that you're inferior. So with all of that said, a single person and a married person both can reflect the beauty of the gospel. A married couple has a picture of Christ loving the church, of of being sacrificial, of serving one another. But a single person, 
What they get to do in their life is they get to point to the truer reality that their heart's desire and love is in the true marriage supper of the Lamb. A single person who is a Christian knows that a marriage is only a picture. But a single person can live contentedness and looking forward to that one true marriage supper. And so we have to understand that Paul here is not trying to discriminate between single people and married people. I think that's a problem sometimes we have. We think singleness is a problem to solve. For Paul, it is not a problem. It's a gift if you have it. But so Paul here pivots, though. He says, though, but for most of you, you should get married. Right? Right there in verse 9. But if you cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. And so I think for most people, most Christians will probably not have the gift of celibacy or singleness And so for Paul's advice then is that you should pursue godly marriage. The only qualification Paul gives later in the chapter is that you marry in the Lord. Now, I had a friend in high school, his name was Garrett, and he would talk about his his future dream wife. And she was athletic and tall and had brown hair and came from money and had her master's degree. And was a good golfer and would let him play video games as much as he wanted and would have 10 kids and bring in a lot. It just, the list went on and on. It was unrealistic, right? Some of those I made up, but it just seemed like, Garrett, I think you're describing the perfect person that doesn't exist. <laughs> and, and certainly I've talked to young Christian women too, and they, they give their list of what they're looking for in a man. And I'm like, I don't even think Jesus would qualify in that list. Like, would you be discontent if you married Jesus? I think you would be, right? And so just like some of my encouragement and challenge to those who are single, I'm not saying attractiveness doesn't matter. It does matter. It's the way God has made us. Attractiveness is a good thing. But I think we also would be helped by understanding that if we found a person who loved the Lord and who loved us, we would be wise to marry them. And so... I recognize, too, there's people in this room who are single who want to be married and and they desire it. And for some reason, they can't find someone or someone isn't a Christian. And I would just just say, I just want to encourage you. Keep trusting Christ and his good and providential care for your life. He sees you. He loves you. It's not a problem to be single. But for most of us, we should pursue marriage in order to abstain from sexual immorality And so, lastly, how do we honor Christ and pursue peace in our marriages? We persist in our marriages. That's my third point, persist in your marriage. When you look down in your Bible in verse 10, Paul kind of gives two categories. First, he talks to those who are Christians and then those who are married to an unbeliever. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, Paul here says, I'm not giving this charge, but the Lord is. And so what he's doing is going back to what Jesus had instructed on marriage, and we can read about those passages in the gospel. And later, you'll actually see in verse 12, he says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Now, that seems confusing. But really what Paul is doing here is in 12 through 16, He's recognizing that Jesus never actually said anything about the situation in which someone might be married to someone who's not a believer. 
when Jesus was talking to the Jewish people, it was assumed everyone was part of the, the community of God's people. And so that, that's why you kind of have those brackets. So he's, he's quoting from, from Jesus here. And more or less, here's what Paul says. If both people are Christians in a marriage, then divorce is an emphatic no. Don't do it. It doesn't honor the Lord. That's just hard, right? We just sit with that for a second. Don't get divorced. Now, some people have referenced, well, why doesn't Paul give the one, you know, reason for divorce that Jesus gives? Jesus says, don't divorce unless on the grounds of sexual immorality. And even on that grounds, Jesus assumes that you're going to fight for your marriage, that it's not going to be the automatic. I have no reason to think that Paul doesn't also include that exception for, for divorce. But I think to the particular situation in which he is writing to, he kind of just uses the shorthand teachings of Jesus. That marriage is a no for two believers. Now, some of us, sometimes we, we read our Western way of thinking into this passage and we're kind of confused with the language. So, in verse 10, Paul says the wife should not separate from her husband. Now, I want to tell you, that's the same word as divorce. In the ancient world, they did not have the categories that we have that you divorce before you actually, you, you separate before you actually divorce. To separate back then was simply divorce. He's using synonymous terms, so don't let the, the translation fool you here. Paul is saying if two people are Christians, the way they honor the Lord is they persist. They do not get divorced except on the grounds of sexual immorality. If you want to read what Jesus said about marriage later this afternoon, go ahead and write these passages down. If you're afraid about writing these passages down and people are going to look at you writing them down, say you're doing it for a friend. Matthew chapter 5 31 and 32, Matthew 19, 3 through 12, Mark 10, 2 through 12, and Luke 16, 18. Matthew 5, 31 through 32, Matthew 19, 3 through 12, Mark 10, 2 through 12, and Luke 16, 18. I hope that is fruitful for you as you consider what our Lord has said about marriage in the Gospels. So again, although Jesus talked a lot about divorce and remarriage and, and divorce was a no, Jesus never did talk about what happens when two people get married, they're both unbelievers, and then one of them becomes a Christian. What happens to the other person in that marriage who, who, who doesn't become a Christian? And these Corinthians believers thought again that, that it was probably spiritually wise or spiritually mature to get rid of them. And again, this is probably a carryover from Judaism. Judaism said that if you married a foreign wife, if, if you married someone outside of the, out of the covenant people, you were unclean, and your children were unclean. And so they're, they're kind of confused. Does my marriage become illegitimate now since that I'm a believer and they're not? And Paul says, absolutely not. The same advice goes for those who are believers. Persist in your marriage. What does he say? That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And the same thing for a wife who has a husband who is not a believer. Paul wants them to know, and no, your marriage is legitimate. And he kind of gives three reasons of why they should not divorce their unbelieving spouse. 
First, he says that an unbelieving husband or wife is made holy because of the marriage. What does that mean? I don't know, okay? (laughs) Very complicated. I can tell you what it doesn't mean. When he says here in verse 14 that the unbelieving husband is made holy, Paul does not mean that that person becomes a Christian. And I know that because what does Paul say at the very end? For how do you know whether you will save your husband? So there's a few views. I'll go through them briefly. Some think that it makes the marriage legitimate. I don't particularly like that because the language of holiness is too strong. So he's saying, no, your marriage is legitimate. Maybe. But some also think that it's kind of a lot like Jesus who touches the leper in Matthew chapter 8. That when Jesus touches something unclean, he doesn't become unclean. That thing becomes clean. And so before that, any person who is a, a, a Jewish you know, lover of God, if they touch something unclean, they became unclean. But now since we have the gospel, since we have the spirit, our marriage doesn't make us unclean. It makes the marriage clean. It's a, it's a good view. But I think what Paul is trying to say here is it makes the opportunity for that marriage to be wholesome. Because even if there's one unbelieving spouse in a marriage who's honoring the Lord, who's obeying Christ, it's going to be a marriage that's still set apart and different than the rest of the world. And so maybe it's a combination of all of these things. It redeems the marriage. It, it maybe gives legitimacy to it. It makes it clean instead of making it unclean. That language of holiness is, is a little unusual. I'm not really sure. But, but second, Paul says, again, the same language. It's that for the sake of the children. Your children become clean. And again, we could say that how much more advantageous is it to have one Christian parent in a marriage than no Christian parents in a marriage? That that one Christian parent can tell their children about who Christ is and about the gospel and help nurture them in the ways of the Lord. But thirdly, Paul says, don't divorce your unbelieving spouse because, what's he say in verse 16? For how do you know? Your spouse may see the changed life in you. I cannot tell you how many stories I've heard of, of one of the, you know, the man or the wife becoming a Christian and their life completely changes, and they are a new person, and Christ is working in their life, and the other person saw the change, and they said, what has happened to you? You are completely new, and that has opened their eyes to the gospel, and they became Christians. And so Paul wants to be very clear. Being married to an unbeliever is not a stain to get rid of. It's an opportunity to help your spouse become a Christian. One man spoke it like this when he talked about his wife becoming a Christian. He said, first, she was no longer the person with whom he had originally fallen in love with and who he decided to marry. Secondly, he said there was another man about the house. He's talking about Jesus. To whom she was all the time referring her every decision and whom she chose to consult for his advice and instructions. This man was no longer the boss in his own house. Jesus gave the orders and set the pace. So you can appreciate that there have been many times when someone becomes a Christian and the ruling authority in this house and in my life is no longer you, it is Christ. And I answer first to him that a number of people said, well, I didn't sign up for this. 
and they choose to leave. Paul seems to anticipate this. This is why he says in verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. And there's a lot of debate about what that term enslaved means, and this brings up a lot of different questions, and we could spend so much time going through all of the nuances, because what Paul seems to be saying here is that if you are married to an unbeliever and they leave you, they abandon you, they desert you, you have cause for divorce. Depending on how you understand that word, you are not bound. Well, this brings up a lot of other questions because some would say if if Scripture gives any legitimate reason for divorce, there's a legitimate reason for remarriage. And so some people understand Paul here saying that abandonment by an unbeliever can also be types of abuse. Abuse is a kind of form of forced abandonment. And I, I don't mean to sit here and give you every thought in my head But just think of all the questions that can kind of come from what Paul is saying here. What if I got divorced illegitimately, but now my ex-spouse has died? What if I was divorced before I was converted? What about domestic abuse? What about all the different reasons we can go on and on? And so just let me give you two quick principles here. When in doubt about the issue of remarriage, I would say remain single. If you are in doubt whether or not you have biblical grounds for remarriage, I would say Paul's advice through this chapter is when in doubt, stay single. My second principle is this. God has given you godly leadership for a reason. Try not to make all of these assumptions and decisions on your own. Bring in your elders to help you make these decisions. And so the very first thing I knew the second I was to this passage, the first way I wanted to apply this passage was to help make sure that we understand that as the body of Christ, we are not ever to make a stigma or discriminate those who have divorce in their past, especially those with the trauma of divorce. I'm sure there are a lot of people who love the Lord, who look back in their life and they know they've made mistakes and now they're in this situation and they feel guilt and they feel shame. We can be pro-marriage and take a strong line on marriage and divorce and remarriage while still showing grace and compassion to those who have divorce in their past. How many of us, I'm sure if we took a poll, have been affected by divorce personally or parent, grandparents? Unfortunately, it is a plague in our society, which is why Paul is giving us this information. Persist in your marriage. But for those who haven't, we need to be gracious. We need to understand that we still are the body of Christ. But more than this, there's, I've been saying a lot, and I apologize, at times feel rambled thoughts. What do we do with all of this, verses 1 through 16? I think we need to work on our marriages. We need to invest in making sure that we have good relational and emotional intimacy in our marriages. We need to understand that if we're drifting in our marriage, we're never drifting towards holiness or towards health. We're always drifting away from it. We, we want to have marriages that honor Christ, that have peace in their marriage. And this is the point that Paul is making. 
That because of the gospel, Christ has taken your worst circumstance, the fact that you sat under God's judgment and he has forgiven you, he has given you new life, you have a new inheritance. Your true circumstance is that of being in Christ. And so when we believe and repent in the gospel, we have to understand that whatever situation we find ourselves in, we can be at peace. Because Christ has made peace. And so for those of us who are married, the way we have peace and honor Christ is we protect and we enjoy our marriage. For those of you who are single, it means you pursue godly marriage. And it also means that we persist in our marriage. And so in verse 15, Paul says, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved God has called you to peace. So in conclusion, everything has changed about us. There is not one square inch of our lives in which the gospel of Jesus Christ does not take effect. From actions to attitudes, we can live at peace in all of our circumstances because Christ has made peace on the cross for our sins. And so, brothers and sisters, don't forget, God calls us as believers to be content, to have joy and to have peace in whatever station we find ourselves in. And so, what matters in life, what matters as a Christian, is that we take the life that he's given us, we take the marriage that we find ourselves in, and we give it back to the Lord. We come under his rule and his authority and we seek to love and honor him. And all of this is possible because of what Christ has done for us by coming, by living a life of perfect righteousness and dying on the cross for our sins. We are called to peace. And so may in our marriages we honor Christ by living up that peace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for all of your good and wonderful gifts. And God, we thank you for the gift of marriage. We thank you for the gift of sex and marriage. Lord, we thank you for the gift of the gospel, the greatest gift, your, your son, the Lord Jesus. So Father, I pray for the marriages of our church. God, may they honor you. May, may our sole focus in life be, does my life honor God. And may in our marriages, may that be true. And so, Lord, I just want to encourage all of us here God, that we would be humble, that if we're struggling in our marriage, that we would find a good couple to maybe ask for advice, to seek help. Lord, I pray for humility in the hearts of both men and women who would not see their bodies as their own, but as they belong to the Lord. So God, give us faith. Help us to believe the gospel, to believe the truth that what you say about us is true. And Lord, we lastly just want to thank you for, for dying on the cross. Jesus, you are the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice. And Lord, if there's any feelings of guilt or remorse, any confusion about past things, God, I pray that we would all come to 
your cross and kneel and accept and embrace the forgiveness that only you can offer. So Father, be glorified in this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.